Amen. Now, if you have your Bible, I hope you do. If you're not in the habit, you might want to start getting in the habit. I know some of you use your phones, but but remember, Google giveth, Google taketh away. It's good to have a hard copy with you. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Again, welcome to those visiting. We're studying, just started just a few weeks ago, the study of the book of Hebrews. So let's, uh, let's pray together, then we'll read a couple verses. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you, Lord, for working in our lives, helping us to see our foolishness of trying to live without you and bringing us to a saving knowledge of yourself. Lord, may the Spirit, who has done this great work in the lives of so many here, continue to do that work of grace and to sanctify us in Christ. We pray for Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 5. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Amen. Now we've begun a study on the book of Hebrews, and the author of the book of Hebrews is concerned with a potential drift of first century Hebraic Christians. You get a sense of this if you look at the last verse Um, or excuse me, the first verse of chapter 2, the first verse of chapter 2, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I think that is really one of the applications that and intentions that the author of Hebrews has here. He is concerned that the church, which remember the early church was made up of both Jews and Christians. And often, uh, Jews were the first converts because the Apostle Paul himself would often start in the synagogue. He would preach Christ in the synagogue. Many in the synagogue would become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then inevitably he would go on uh, to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, as we've said before, we're not certain who the author of the Hebrews is, but uh, they are inspired by the Spirit of God to write this letter to a particular situation confronting the church uh, in that day. And, but we should think, too, that it doesn't mean, though, that it is not without great relevance to a situation we find ourselves today, uh, even if we are not uh, made up chiefly here of Uh, those who are Jews by way of background or ethnicity here. The church, I think, in the West is facing a crisis of drifting 
as well. Now, it may not be a drifting necessarily into the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, such as the original audience to this letter would have been possibly tempted to do. But I think we are confronted here with a drift into secularism. That is, a drifting away from the church, a drifting away from the Lord, towards a world that is devoid of the gospel. A world devoid of the transcendent and a world devoid of a common moral order. A common moral order that has led to the growth and prosperity of the West despite many of our sins. This was true, I think, particularly of those of us who, uh, one way or another, have inherited the Protestant Reformation, uh, particularly even the high octane <laughs> Protestant reformers of the Puritans, many of whom who came to this country. I think the author of Hebrews is trying to remedy this potential drift. And how is he trying to do it? He's trying to do it by reminding the congregation of the excellency and the majesty, the glory of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is immeasurable, that there is no one or no thing that compares to the beauty and the excellency of the God-man, that God has revealed himself to us chiefly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that to drift from Christ is to drift from the gospel and to drift from the Lord to other things. And so the author of Hebrews seems to be trying almost, if you will, to inoculate the church from the virus of apostasy by giving them a good dose of the glory and the power and the majesty and the, and the incomparableness of Christ. And I think this theme is of great usefulness for us today. Why are we culturally moving away from the church? The statistics bear it out. Why are we moving away from the gospel and from Christ himself? I think it's because our neighbors do not see the excellency of Christ. That Jesus Christ is exalted. He is glorified. He's been honored by the Father, and he is adored by angels. I think our need for today is that we need to have our minds and the minds of our neighbors transformed by this thought that Christ is all glorious. Christ is all lovely. Christ is to be exalted. Why? Not because we're putting him up there, but because that is where he really is. He is, as we saw last week, sitting at the right hand of the Father. We are preoccupied with the mundane right now. We are preoccupied with scrolling and texting and social media these days. We're preoccupied uh, with this world. It is weighing too much on our minds. We have a lot of blessings. One of those blessings is longevity. And I think, but one of the unintentional consequences of longevity in our culture is to think that we shall live forever. Our name shall go on forever in this world. And I think that contributes in some way. We, we often are not confronted with our mortality, the way our 
Many of our forefathers were. There are some people who have made it into adulthood that have never been to a funeral. Think about that. Many, many people have never even seen a body whose soul has departed uh, before. And this uh, may have contributed something to the, the loss of the sense that we are mortal. And as the words of the Hebrew author says, that it is appointed unto us to die, and then comes the judgment. And, and so we are distracted people, filled with the mundane. We have lost a sense of what is coming for us all. Now, last week, we were looking at the session of Christ. And you remember, boys and girls, how that word session, we said, meant to sit. That Jesus has been exalted in his ascendancy, and then he has been invited by the Father to sit on the throne of God at his right hand. And we saw three things. One, the sitting of Christ or the session of Christ signified the completeness of his substitutionary atonement. Secondly, we saw it signified the honor and the glory that now belongs to Christ. And then thirdly, we saw that it signifies the new heavenly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, I want to go on to verses 4 and 5 with two thoughts, only two this week. Number one, the proposition, what I'm calling the proposition, and that is Christ is superior to the angels. The proposition Christ is superior to the angels. And then number two, the argumentation or the evidence. And that is the declarations of God the Father given uniquely to Jesus as the Son. Declarations from the Father to the Son. That is, that Jesus is the only one who has received certain pronouncements. No one else in heaven or on earth have received these kinds of pronouncements here. So number one, the proposition, Christ is superior. He is excellent. So let's look at verse 4 again. Notice here that uh, last week we ended with Christ sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then now verse 4, this is still speaking of Christ having become as much better than the angels. Having become as much better than the angels he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, what does this mean, having become as much better than the angels? Does that mean that somehow Christ was inferior to angels in his being, in his subsistence, in his essence? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Christ, we know, from other passages, is the eternal Son of God. He is the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. So what does this mean then that Christ, having become much better than the angels, seems to suggest that for at least temporarily, for a season, he was less than the angels. What does this mean? Well, as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Christ, the eternal Son of God, was always superior to angels. But what the author of Hebrews is intending for us to understand is this, that at the incarnation, Christ was made a little lower than the angels in his humanity. Psalm 8, verse 5. Psalm 8, verse 5 tells us that man 
by nature, the order of things was made, though in the image of God, a little lower than the angels. Angels, boys and girls, are powerful. Angels stand in the presence of God. They are ministering spirits who worship God and they serve God's people. And they are, they are extraterrestrial, extra-universal, really. So if anybody asks you, do you believe in extraterrestrial creatures, beings, you can, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> because angels uh, live uh, in heaven but come into this world. Uh, they are in the presence of God, and yet sometimes they make appearances in this world serving us and helping us. There are a lot of accounts of angels in the Bible. We won't rehearse them all, but let me just give you a sense of the glory of these ministering spirits. In Isaiah chapter 6, many of you know that very famous passage where Isaiah is called to the ministry. And a part of that call to the ministry was for Isaiah to get a glimpse of the glory of God. And you'll remember that when Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord... He saw the Lord high and lifted up his train, the train of his robe filling the room. And on either side of that great throne where the Lord sat were these angelic creatures called seraphim. And with two wings they flew and two wings they covered their eyes and two wings they covered their creatureliness. And they sang unceasingly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They praised God. They worshiped God. That was their job. That is their job. They bring glory 24-7 to the Lord. And Isaiah sees these strange and holy creatures, and he sees the magnificence and the holiness of God, and he says, I'm undone. I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Who can stand in the presence of such glory? And so we see that, you know, part of that glory were these angelic creatures that brought conviction to Isaiah that he and his people were sinful. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that there were three quote-unquote men, two of whom I think were angels, and one I think was the pre-incarnate Christ who visited Abraham and Sarah. And they came and they visited him, and the reason for this, I think, is because it says that that uh, one of them left, and, and, it, it, and, and the Bible describes it, Moses describes it as the Lord leaving. But the other two who remained did what? They went on down to Sodom and Gomorrah, so that the three became two, and it was the angels who went down to rescue Lot and to deliver them before God brought that terrible judgment on that whole valley region. Well, they were glorious beings. Sometimes... When angels make appearances unto men, what is the first thing that they say? Do not fear. You notice that? How many times angels have to say to us mere mortals when they make their appearances not to be afraid? It's because they are powerful. They are glorious. Uh, they, there were times when God's people thought they were going to die because they had seen something of the glory of the Lord. You remember Manoah, his wife had to correct Manoah. And, and you know, Manoah says, you know, we're going to die. And she says, no, would the Lord have accepted our sacrifice if he was going to take our life? 
In Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9, angel Gabriel meets with Daniel. Daniel sometimes falls down as a dead man, we're told. So did John when he saw the Lord. Luke chapter 1 verse 19, Gabriel then, about 580 plus years later, after appearing to Daniel, Gabriel comes back on the scene to Zacharias regarding the birth of John the Baptist. And then six months later, he comes again and appears to Mary to talk to her about the conception and the birth of our Lord. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, angels come and they minister to Jesus during his time of fasting and prayer and his temptations, the sufferings that he was experiencing at the temptations of Satan. We also see in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared, we are told, while Jesus was praying fervently in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember how Jesus is realizing the weight uh, of this cross and the judgment he's about to suffer at the hands of his father because he's taking the place of sinners and he's going to die the equivalent of uh, a million deaths and punishments in hell. And as he is pouring out his soul to the Lord, afterward we are told that an angel came to strengthen our Savior so that he could go out from the garden and enter into his sufferings. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, to encourage God's people in hospitality, he said, some have even entertained angels unawares. We see in the Old Testament where people gave entertainment. I spoke of in Genesis 18 of Abraham and Sarah entertaining angels there. In Jude, verse 6, angels, we are told, who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. Uh, there are angels, boys and girls, who fell away from the Lord and did evil. And Jude tells us they are being reserved for a place of judgment. Michael is an archangel spoken of in verse 9 of Jude who disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. And of course we see angels uh, many times in the book of Revelation uh, bringing uh, words to John, pouring out vials of wrath and judgment, etc. Now, I say all that because as, as excellent and mysterious as angels are to us humans, the author here is saying that Jesus Christ has been elevated to a higher and more glorious position than any of them, more than Gabriel, more than Michael, because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in his humiliation while on earth as the God-man, he has now been given a more excellent position in relation to to everyone else. That is, at the session, the seating of Christ, the Father declares that Christ is superior to all. And so we see here in our verse, having become much better than the angels refers to the exaltation of Christ. You notice those couple hymns we sang this morning? And if you note, they are in a collection of hymns that refer to the exaltation of Christ. You know, boys and girls, how your catechism speaks of the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. When did Christ enter into the humiliation? Well, Christ entered into the humiliation having been conceived and born in a low condition. At the moment he became a man, he entered into that humiliation and lived a life of sorrows and suffering. 
But having completed his work on the cross, God then raises him from the dead. Where does the exaltation in your catechism begin? It begins at the resurrection. And then it goes to the ascension. And then it goes to the session of Christ. And so what our author here is saying is in, he is he, Christ, has become much better than the angels, not in his subsistence, not in his being, but in terms of his position, he is now elevated, he is exalted. Now, yes, he is God and always has been. But remember what Philippians says, he was willing to set aside the prerogatives of being God. Now, that does not mean he shed his deity. He did not empty himself of his deity. But he emptied himself of all the privileges, the rights, and the prerogatives as the Son of God to take the position of a servant and to suffer even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And now having done that and fulfilled all that the Father asked him to do in this world, now he is exalted to his rightful place again. And he is being elevated here. And he wants this church here to recognize, lest they be thought, to go back to, to the Old Covenant. And you say, well, what does the Old Covenant have to do with, why is he making the case of, of that Christ is greater than angels? Well, John Owen's take on this is, is that, remember that the Jews had a high view of the angels because we are told in the Bible that the law came through the angels, we are told. Remember that, it, it, that, that uh, the word sometimes came through particular angels, but even the law as it was given unto Moses came by way of God coming down in his glory and with that, all the angels of the Lord upon that fiery mountain. And so it was common uh, for uh, the Jews to think, well, there's something less of the gospel possibly because it doesn't seem to be coming with all the same glory that it came with in the days of Moses. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Christ is far superior to any angels. Okay, we, The Jews were saying, we, we used to receive the old revelation by way of a fiery mountain with thunder and smoke and cloud and glory and power. And if so much as a little sheep should touch that mountain, it was to be put to death. And that only Moses was to approach So maybe, maybe this old covenant is greater than this new one. And the author of Hebrews said, don't go that way. Don't go back to that. Because Christ is, is far greater, far superior to that. Um, as I said, we, we are in a different setting than many of these first century Christians. But is it not a temptation for us all to drift from the person of Jesus Christ, from the glory of the gospel, to think that maybe there's something else, somewhere else, greater, more power, more glory, and so we look for it in other things. And the author of Hebrews is reminding us, you will never find it outside of Christ. We are to, by faith, look to Christ, whom we do not see. Christ has, boys and girls, Christ has gone to be with the Father in heaven. He said, I have to leave. It's better that I leave. And so we, we do not see him with the visible eye, with, but with the eye of faith, we look to him. 
And how do we look to him? We look to him as he is revealed to us in the Bible. You know, isn't it interesting that the Apostle John, when Jesus was here in this world, the Apostle John would have an intimacy laying his head upon the breast of Christ in the upper room. And yet, once Christ is exalted, John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It's the same person. Well, what's happened? Jesus has left his humiliation and he has entered into glory. And now it's almost to say, John, things have changed. Things have changed. I, I, I am who I have always been, but now I've been raised up and exalted. Do you, do you find yourself at times maybe drifting away from the Christian life? Do you ever feel that tug of the world, the pressure to compromise, to move away from Christ, to be muted about who Jesus is or your commitment to Jesus Christ? Or do you find yourself drifting maybe by the allure of the world or maybe the, the vain philosophies of this life and you think, well, maybe, maybe there's something to these philosophies. Maybe I should listen to the powerful and the rich and, and, and listen to their worldview and, and, and to move away subtly or not so subtly. I think the author of Hebrews would encourage us and any who are listening that we ought to look hard at the glory of Christ. Let that sink in into our lives um, I want to keep moving here, though. Let me move to the second point. Because after making the proposition that Christ is greater than angels, you see in verse 4, now look at verse 5. And he gives here some argumentation and evidence for what he has already stated in verse 4. And, it's, and it comes from two different verses. The first one, if you have a margin noted Bible, you'll note there Psalm 2 verse 7 and 2 Samuel 7 14 are the two references here. You'll notice that maybe your Bible has set the type differently in all caps or something like that. That's always to tell you that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. So that the author of the Hebrews here is saying now this, Christ is far greater in glory and power than any angel or any group of angels and that the evidence for this is from two verses from the Old Testament. So he is making a very clever argument here in saying to his probably fellow Jews, look, Christ is greater than the angels, and I'll prove it to you from the Old Testament that you hold to. I'll, I'll prove that even in the Old Testament, they were always looking ahead to the future exaltation of our Lord and Savior. And the first one comes from Psalm 2 and the second one from 2 Samuel 7. Now, one of the things you want to do as a Christian is you always want to pay attention to those Old Testament passages that the New Testament refers to. Those are usually good indications that these are passages and chapters in your Bible that you need to know. So Psalm 2, you don't have to turn there, but what is the, the psalm about? It's a psalm of David. So it was written about a thousand years before Christ ever came into this world. And in Psalm 2, David writes 
a song about the nations raging. It's almost really set like a Greek drama when you look at it. You've got these protagonists and antagonists, and you have this chorus that keeps repeating a refrain uh, in the psalm. And basically it opens with the opening scene that the nations are raging against the Lord and they don't want to be under the reign of God. And so they rebel and they murmur and they complain and they conspire. We are going to break our chains and we're going to get out from under God. That should sound familiar to us all, right? The world trying to get out from under the authority and the claims of God in their life. They're hiding and rebelling from God. What is God's response? Well, the psalmist takes us to heaven and he shows us that God is seated where? In glory. He is lifted high above. And what does he say? He laughs in derision at those that are conspiring against him. Why? He says, because I have set my son at my right hand. I today have begotten you. And that is what is being quoted here. You are my son today. I have begotten you. Now, what does this mean that I have begotten you? Does that mean that somehow that the son is the first act of creation by the father? Are the Jehovah's Witnesses correct about this? That the first thing God did before he said, let there be light, was to create the sun? Well, no, that's not what this means. The Bible tells us that the sun has always been the sun. He has always existed. As our early creeds and confessions taught, that the sun is eternally begotten. So what does this mean here when the father says, you are my son, today I have begotten you? What it means here is not that this is the moment when Christ came into existence, but rather begotten is to be understood as the moment that he was enthroned or installed as the king. There, you know, John Owen, again, if I can rely on Owen, Owen essentially says, you know, it's the moment that something is declared, and when God declares it, that is the moment in in a sense that it is begotten. Think of it this way, because this might be difficult for us to understand. We go through various sports seasons, right? And eventually someone is declared the champion, Sometimes, though, when you look back on that season, you realize what? It was always going to be that result, wasn't it? You know, Alabama or Georgia, they were just that, they were destined that year to win it. But it wasn't declared until when? Later, right? At the end. We've all experienced this, right? You knew the outcome of the game before it even began. Before the kickoff, before the first pitch, you knew how this game was going to end. Because one team was so much superior to another. In the same way, by way of analogy, here what we have in this psalm and what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Christ, who has always been the Son, was declared at the resurrection and at the ascension and at the session 
to be the Son of God with power. You know how Paul says this in the first opening chapter, chapter 1 of Romans, where Paul says that by the resurrection of Christ, God declared him to be the Son. He was declared the Son of God by power. He was a man who came into this world in weakness and humiliation, but he was declared the Son of God. Was he not the Son of God when he was with us in this world? Well, of course he was the Son of God. But he was declared, he was shown by the power, by the exaltation, by the majesty and the glory. And that that when it was declared, that is the sense in which it was begotten. And, And you can look, you can see how the apostles, if you look in your marginal notes, you'll see it there in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. This is the way the apostles spoke of this. They said, you want evidence for the resurrection? It's in Psalm 2. It's in Psalm 2. The other chapter you need to know, and then I want to make some applications, is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. That's the second quote here. The second proof, the second evidence that the, that the Father, that the, or excuse me, that the Son is uniquely the Son and is incomparable to any angel or anyone else are these declarations. One, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. And then look at the second quote. It comes from 2 Samuel 7. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Are we to understand that there was a moment in time when Christ was not the Son? No. He has always been the eternal Son. But what is the author of Hebrews saying here? He is taking this verse and applying it to the exaltation of Christ. Christ is entering in to the inheritance that was always predestined for him. Christ the Son. Remember, you know, he's declared the Son at baptism. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He was declared the Son at the transfiguration. But the point here is being that even though he was the Son of the Father, he was the Son who had not entered in or not yet realized, not in a consciousness sense, but realized Uh, in terms of the completion of his work, he had not finished. He had not been brought into glory yet. So 2 Samuel 7 is another chapter that you need to know. Remember that this was the chapter where David wanted to build the temple. And, you know, God essentially said, look, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And how is God going to build an eternal house for David? Through his son. And when was that realized fully? When Christ ascended and sat down at the right hand, he said, you're my son now. You truly are my son with all the privileges and prerogatives of being the son uh, of God. You are no longer in your humiliation and in your sufferings now. Well, what, what do we make of this here? First of all, let me say, if you maybe are not a Christian yet, you're thinking about Christianity, maybe you're weighing the truths of it. Maybe you have friends who are Christians and you've decided to start going to church. What, what, what does this mean for you? I would say this, that one of the things you need to realize is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here, is that Jesus Christ is like no one else. Jesus Christ is above everybody else. He's not just another man. He's not just another prophet. He's not just some peripatetic philosopher who goes around with deep thoughts. He's not some kind of Muhammad or Buddha. None of these other guys compare to Christ. In fact, not even the angels themselves compare to Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the eternal Son. He's become a man. He took on our humanity. Why did he do that? Because he had to substitute himself for us in life, death, and resurrection, and now in ascension. And so that you, when you look to Christ, you have all that you need in this life and for the world that is to come. When you look by faith to who Jesus really is, and you listen to that declaration of the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him, believe on him, trust him, look to him, make him your king, own him, then the Bible promises that you become a part of his family. The Bible says you, you are brought savingly into the family of God. Also, to those of you who confess Christ, you want to look at the supremacy of Jesus Christ because you, you don't want to drift away. If you're struggling with backsliding, you're having trouble reading your Bible, you feel like a worldly spirit is kind of encroaching in on your heart, you, you feel like you're not bearing as much fruit or joy in your life as you used to, you know, what you need to do is recommit, recovenant with God in Christ. And, and to look at the excellency of Jesus Christ and to realize, you know, that, that, that just like we sing in the hymn, I mean, when we behold Christ in all his glory, the things of this world grow strangely dim, we sing. The, 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 the problem is, you, is that your, your eyes are not cast up to him. And, and you're, you're allowing the, the cares and the concerns of life, which are a reality, but you're allowing them to have too much weight in your life and you're allowing them to choke out the vibrancy of your life in Jesus Christ. And you've got to do some pruning and the loppers that you need um, uh, are Christ himself by looking at Christ in the majesty and the glory, the beauty, the excellency of Christ. Think about how in Isaiah's vision of the exalted Christ, the angels, now think about this. These are sinless creatures. And yet they cover their eyes in the presence of the glorified Christ. They cover their feet, which is kind of a euphemistic way of saying they cover their creatureliness because the glory of Christ is so great. You know, our, our Christianity today tends to be kind of sentimental. And you see this in pictures, you know, pictures of what people imagine heaven's like. And, and, it, and, and it's pictures of people coming and almost being united to an earthly Jesus that's in the sky. There's a good reason we shouldn't draw pictures of the Lord, many of them. And there's a good reason we probably shouldn't draw and imagine what it's like. Because as sentimental as that might be, the picture in Revelation and other places is Christ is far more glorious than just simply running into his arms. There is a majesty, a beauty, a glory that even sinless creatures feel the distance. I'm not trying to say that therefore Jesus is distant from you. I'm trying to get you to understand 
who he is. That will help you, I think, come back uh, to a vibrancy that maybe is missing. St. Clair Ferguson asks the question, are you becoming metallic in your faith? Are you becoming metallic in your faith? Industrial. It's just work. It's just gear on gear. Iron on iron, cog on cog, kind of moving but lifeless, hard, cold. Here again, think about the excellency of Christ, how lifted up he is, that all the people of God are fall on their face in glory, we are told in the book of Revelation. The, 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 the people who go before us and into the presence of the Lord and they see God and the Lamb and they worship the Lamb as they worship the Father. All glory, honor, power, and dominion unto Him who is on the throne and to the Lamb of God. They give Christ as much every, every ounce of glory as they do the Father. And they praise him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the supremacy, the incomparableness of Jesus Christ in glory. Thank you, O Lord, for helping us to lift up our eyes today to things that are above. May we, by the power and ministry of the Spirit, abide in these things and bear fruit as a result. In Jesus' name.